Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for January the 22nd with myself, Andries Vantanar, and my colleagues Harry Morgan and Peter White. In this episode, we discuss China's astonishing 48.2 gigawatt solar and 71.67 gigawatts of wind additions in 2020, and how the wind figure in particular can even be possible. Uh, we discuss Biden's cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline and the last years of America's natural gas development, as well as options to switch fossil fuel infrastructure to be used for hydrogen instead. We also cover comments from China's provinces about their plans for renewable energy in the coming 14th five-year plan. Let's go straight into the, the renewables figures. Let's discuss what Andres found. 72 gigawatts of wind and 48.2 gigawatts solar, but also a further 12.2 gigawatts of hydropower. Is this China's National Energy Administration actually getting its transmission again together? We've said before, either these things were built already waiting to be connected to the grid, or they were not built already, but they were waiting to finish or waiting to push the money in until the grid was ready. Yeah, because... I mean, it's basically impossible for them to have actually installed 72 gigawatts of wind in a year. So so the question is whether some of that gets accrued to the previous year or next year. One possibility is that they built a lot last year and then didn't connect it until this year. Uh, that That's what the that's what GWEC thinks. They think um, that's what the Chinese Wind Energy Association has supposedly said, that there's 26.3 gigawatts of wind that was delayed in its grid collection from last year. But that would still leave 45 gigawatts, even if that's entirely true, um, built this year, which is basically twice what we were, what's normal a couple of years back. And it's it's nearly twice what we were expecting. So again, it could be that these projects were just really rushed or they aren't completely finished, but they did enough to, to pass the deadline for the feed-in tariff subsidies uh, at the end of this year. Okay, and Harry thinks it's a bit of both. Harry, let me kick this over to you as our wind analyst. Um, if it was 72, and they're gonna, that's the official number, what's it going to be next year? Next year's a tricky one. Um, so a, a lot of the sort of rush of installations in China has been um, due to the fact that their feed-in tariff expired at the end of 2020. So. I think that's what we've really seen. And I, I would be surprised if all of this new capacity is capacity that is going to be feeding all of its electricity into the grid uh, straight away. I think it's likely that they've that all of it has achieved some sort of grid connection. But we know just due to the fact of China's sort of struggling grid, really, that it's unlikely that this capacity is going to be fully active. A lot of it will be curtailed from the start. Um, and I think the fact that a lot of it's been curtailed means that probably not even all of the turbines need to be fully installed for the project to be classed as complete. So that that's a high possibility in the fact that the reasons the, the number is so high, basically. In terms of looking forward, I mean, we saw 72 gigawatts installed this year, but it, it's likely we'll see half of that next year. But even half of that. I mean, if you, if you take 71 and you take the expected number that we, we had of about 20, and that's 90, uh, across two years, that's 45 per year. So will we already at that level then is is it going to be 45 50 55 60 for the next five years there's no reason why not really um i think the bottleneck here will be the production of turbines i mean it, it's all quite i suppose under the radar how companies like goldwind uh, operate in china and where their sort of factories are and how they 
um, pulling all their steel. But we know that China's really gone into overdrive in its manufacturing um, in the past year to sort of capitalise on other countries fading off. I know that their steel production has gone absolutely through the roof this year, so they'll need some sort of outlet for uh, for their steel. And the wind market is a great one for that, especially given uh, China's new target to reach net zero by 2060. Yeah, but everything, you know, it needs steel, doesn't it? it, it we were talking about cars the other day. And, and when you have an immature car industry, the bodies are made of steel. Uh, when you've got a mature one, you, you might have all kind of carbon composites making the bodies up. But yeah. still, the... Um, the frame and the uh, axles are all made of steel. Steel is just used by everything that that you make. So actually, while, li- while we're at on. it, I should point out that something that maybe adds a bit of context or credence to the the huge wind figure is that the solar figure is also a bit above the highest expectations that I'd seen at 48 gigawatts. I mean, I was expecting 41.5. I think the highest prediction I'd seen was 45. So instead, we're three gigawatts ahead of that. So it does seem to and it's the same across wind and solar with um, the subsidy deadline at the end of this year. Yeah, this is a coronavirus year. I mean, that's that's the thing is this is going to be one set of years. History is going to look back on and go, what was that? Oh, it was the coronavirus. It changed a lot of behaviour. People did things um, that they they wouldn't in a panic to overcome the economic effects of coronavirus and 2021 is going to be a bit like that as well uh, and and then we, we whatever the new normal is will emerge everybody else has been talking about biden and his speech his inauguration speech and the and outside of our zone i must say i was absolutely gobsmacked by his speech about um, letting sort of Mexican nationals and uh, anybody who's from another country who's in the country legally or illegally or, or partially legally and giving them an amnesty and giving them green cards and welcoming them to America. And that position, as opposed to Trump, almost, you know, had me in tears because I just thought that's what this country's about. And suddenly it's back. Uh, and it's the same when it comes to taking on a, a, a new industry. We, we, we've had Trump fighting for the past, and here we have Biden about announcing the future with renewables. So, And I think we've talked about the, the Keystone XL pipeline being potentially cancelled. Harry, you wrote, wrote a piece welcoming Biden. What, what else should we, uh, should we note? Yeah, it was a great day seeing him sworn into office. I think, obviously, he's got a lot of wounds to heal in the US in general, not just those in terms of climate action but um it is great to see that he has put things like cancelling the keystone xl pipeline and rejoining the power agreement as sort of the top of his priority and he did that within 24 hours of being uh, the us president so that's great to see obviously the paris agreement won't be they won't be fully back in for the next 30 days but that's just a uh, formality really it is important to to say that the role of the sort of president in building out renewables and sort of decarbonizing the economy uh, it shouldn't be overstated i think most of it will be driven by prices um and technology but um there's so there's so many things you can do in terms of tax credits rural electrification sort of mandating sort of blending of a bit of hydrogen or um or ethanol in certain fuel mixes so these are sort of things that you can do. And I think when you've got the, the government pulling in the same direction as industry and you've got uh, administration agencies like FERC, you've got the courts and if everyone's pulling in the same direction, 
it definitely will see an acceleration in terms of decarbonisation in the US and some certain sort of durable policy changes that will really drive things forward. But as I was saying, I think you don't want to overstate it. I think we've seen through the figures that the EIA released this week that... Yeah, I was just looking at the graph on, on the story of what the EIA sees as 2021. And I was just going to ask you, you know, and, and it was amazing that, that um, they're saying America will put in 39.7 gigawatts of energy, uh, 39% of which will be solar, 31% wind, 11% batteries, 3% nuclear, and only 16% natural gas. Now, if we had to roll that forward another year, can you guess at me what the proportions would be to next year's graph? I would be surprised to see natural gas reach sort of above three gigawatts. I think it, Joe Biden's very firmly said that he wants the US the US power mix to be carbon free by 2035. And while the US has got some sort of ambitions in carbon capture, I think there's no way that gambling on those technologies will will see that reach by that point. And I think the fact that obviously these sort of natural gas installations that are going in now will have to be retired early that means that we won't see them installed sort of next year the following year and the ones we are seeing installed now are sort of a hangover of an area where people did think that wind and solar would be too intermittent to actually provide sort of 24 uh, 7 electricity so do you think so one of the things that's quite interesting you know 11 percent 4.3 gigawatts on batteries i can't remember what our forecast was i think it was even higher than that that Perhaps if we roll forward another year, it will be even higher than that. It will go into the six and seven uh, and, and eat up some of that natural gas. That 6.6 gigawatts now, and you're saying a, another year on will be no higher than three. But uh, it's quite interesting that the the the, um, the idea that major projects which have high capex, like um, the underground um, hydrogen storage we wrote about last week, or um, some kind of compressed air storage or um, the gravity storage. Do you think that they're going to find uh, their way onto that graph in the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, interesting. Um, so I think to some extent that's where we'll see them struggle is that while politicians often like to encourage innovation, so industry where it's all sort of dictated by price and technological performance really don't necessarily or at least not in the sort of short term so i think seeing those those sort of novel technologies getting um, a significant chunk of this in the next sort of year or two is unlikely hydrogen though i think in the next sort of five years we'll start to see take up a larger uh, larger point one of the really interesting things that uh, came out this week was with the keystone pipeline being cancelled was sort of a growing discussion about how that could be changed into a hydrogen pipeline so obviously canada is a much better country in terms of their ability to build out an excess of renewable capacity given their population um, so if you can produce hydrogen in canada and then transport it down to the us you'd use um, wind for that i presume yeah or their excess of uh, hydropower um, which they've obviously got a large abundance of at the moment okay. and using hydropower obviously for we saw a pilot project for that actually this week being approved having sort of that 24 7 production of hydrogen makes it so much cheaper and then having a pipeline that's already been built i know the Canadian side largely been built with sort of 1.5 billion of investment then suddenly being able to change that to support hydrogen will mean that the idea of a wholesale market for green hydrogen in the US will sort of really accelerate and possibly by 2030 it uh, will be a reality it definitely will be cost competitive in the next sort of five years or so. You you should write a um, a LinkedIn post or, or a tweet on the prospect of the Keystone pipeline instead of being broken up into bits of pipeline that sold for scrap being used for hydrogen that would be it that would be a, 
I don't think I, I don't know that the, 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 the it's the right kind of pipeline for hydrogen, but it, it's but conceptually it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, so I've got an, an interview set up on um, Monday with Proton Technologies, who obviously have got those sort of underground uh, oil reservoirs that they can produce uh, hydrogen from. Um, who sort of, who sort of came to the forefront of that discussion earlier this week? So I'll definitely be interviewing them and having a and ask about it in next week's issue. You see, that's that's another thing when we we talked earlier about that. Canadian university research, which is saying that there are are, uh, millions of old, uncapped gas and oil wells leaking methane. If you put one of those proton membranes over them, uh, what leaks out is hydrogen and you capture it. And instead of having all of those leaking uh, out uh, methane, the methane is kept inside uh, by the membrane and uh, uh, what comes through it is, is pure hydrogen and then you use it. So they're, they're, they're actually saying there's a use for old oil wells. That's that's a better idea than capping them, using them to generate hydrogen. Yeah, I think it's just sort of veering away from hearing um, oil reservoir as a dirty word, which is definitely going to be a difficult thing to do. But I think once you can prove that the technology is emissions free, which they've already sort of shown through pilot projects, but once they've done that at scale, um, there's no reason why those sort of technologies can't be a part of the the future of hydrogen. It's like the seven stages of grief, isn't it? You know, first denial. Yeah. Then, then it, you know, and the, I think the seventh stage is acceptance. And once you understand that the oil is, is, is largely not to blame, it's what the humans have done with it and how they've done it with it. And that it's a resource. As long as it's used with respect to the carbon budget, it's it's fine to use it. You know, I mean, as, as there's greater understanding of the carbon balance in the in the world, there's better understanding of when to inject carbon back into, or, or rather keep carbon under the ground, but take out the hydro part of the carbons. Yeah, absolutely. And as long as the process in which you do that isn't too invasive on the land, then uh, there's nothing really to complain about. Well, it's already been invasive for the last, uh, you know, 150 years. It's a matter of how you fix it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, five years plan in China, Andres. I think we, we I can see a paper coming out of this. You gave us a little glimpse, but I think we need to, a map and a paper and an understanding of what this five-year plan will do to prices and a feel of what it will do to some of the companies involved. Can you give us, just just from your research so far in that article, you know, what you think the future holds for in this five-year plan? Well, China is still running these good old communist five-year plans, of course, and uh, the next one, the 14th, starts in March. So we're seeing um, provinces announce quite a lot of what they're planning. So let me just understand, is it the central government announces one thing and the province announces something additional or, or are they all merged together? I think the provinces probably are, are uh, announcing things to stay in line with the central government. But they do have some leeway, like we saw with Inner Mongolia, which is... Um, Inner Mongolia, I think, might be the single biggest state for wind and solar. But it's also building all of this coal. But So, yeah, and it, it just... Uh, you can see from what the provinces are talking about, how the different areas of China have different priorities in terms of green energy. You know, obviously, you've got this band across the top of the country and the west of the country where... The sun is very bright, so the solar resources is the best there. But then you need more transmission lines, including these 800 kilovolt. What, what is it? Ultra high voltage direct current transmission lines. So one interesting thing was you've got um, seemingly the the hydrogen that's been mentioned is mostly in the northern coastline, what used to be Manchuria, but also Hebei, which is the province around Beijing. 
And then the other province was on the south coast, Guangdong, near near Macau. So those are going to be the hydrogen producing centers, maybe. I mean, we know that there's going to be hydrogen produced from these these hybrid complexes really across the country. Even there's one in Xinjiang using a reservoir in the desert there. So uh, a couple of central centrally located provinces surrounded by all the big cities, they're, they're looking more into the, the market for, for energy and green en- energy and, and storage as well. Thinking about hydrogen, and we were talking earlier about Canada, um, if you, you take a water supply like in Xinjiang, where, where they're going to use a particular reservoir, that water supply, if that's turned into oxygen and hydrogen, the oxygen either gets captured or floats away. Hydrogen is then piped to another part of the country to be used, the net result of that hydrogen being combined again with oxygen is water. You've taken all the water and you've recreated it at a different place. Is is that going to be a factor? Shouldn't you leave it where it is? Well, I think think the reservoirs they're using are, there's a canal that feeds them from the Irtush River, I think, which is like on the border between Russia and China. So maybe they might actually have enough. You you tend to think of it as just a desert, but they might actually have um, enough water there. I mean, Xinjiang, I was just reading with the... um, with the the thoughts about the U.S. Um, banning imports from Xinjiang over the Uyghur issue, apparently they they grow cotton and tomatoes there, so they must have some water. And so, if if some of it's turned to hydrogen, and that leaves the area where it's turned back into water, that then could supply water. It's it's, it's a very light way of carrying water. You carry it as hydrogen. Mm. Yeah, actually, uh, it must be like a twenty-fourth of the of water's weight or something. The, I, I look forward to a deeper dig on on the fourteen-year, five-year plan. I think you need to go into it quite deep, and I think you're the right person to do it. And I think we should have um, um, not just uh, another paper on it, but perhaps you know each, each time a story comes out of it, we should. Uh, I mean, the fact is, you've already revealed that. that China has not missed the hydrogen boat. Because it's this kind of opaque society because of language, we, we think, oh, we've invented hydrogen in Europe. We're going to do that big hydrogen thing. We're ahead of America. America then kind of makes a few policy statements. And then everyone says, yeah, but we're, at least we're all ahead of China. And then it turns out we're not. <laughs>